welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. You know, I found a great quote for our case this week. What is it? It's from J.D. Salinger, and he says, all mothers are slightly insane. Well, (laughs) I'm a mother, and I I would believe that. Yeah, me too. I think I qualify on both counts, I have to say. So this week, our episode is called Bad Mothers and the Sterilized Heiress. This case blows my mind. Yeah, this mother, I think, goes beyond what Salinger meant. Oh my God. She's like mommy dearest on steroids. As we said, this next case is unimaginable to us. Laura and I are both moms to daughters. And anytime you're a parent, there is always going to be a level of frustration and worry. But this is so outweighed by deep, deep love. I swear, I think my daughter taught me what love is. My mother told me when I was pregnant, it's like describing a color you've never seen. That's what it's like having a child. That's so deep, the love. And this is completely unimaginable to me, uh, the story that's going to follow. But what about mothers who hate their daughters and intentionally hurt them, like our subject today? In January 1936, heiress Ann Cooper Hewitt sued her mother, Marion Cooper Hewitt, for the sum of half a million dollars. That's a huge amount of money back then. Claiming in court her mother had paid doctors to quote-unquote unsex her in order to deprive her of her inheritance. Whoa. Suddenly, all the dirty laundry of this well-known New York City family was being aired out. How could a mother do this to her own daughter? We'll find out. Born in 1886 to a truck driver and a housewife in Baltimore, Marion Andrews knew she was bound for a better life. By 1903, dark and sultry 19-year-old Marion was full of ambition and moved to New York. Like the skyscrapers that were built in Manhattan at the time, she wanted to rise even higher. Well, this is kind of an interesting thing because at that time, you've got like the Empire State Building and they're all competing for the skyline and to be the highest building. Really, Marion is the same way comes from very humble means, and she is just ambitious. She wants to marry money. And she first married a Spanish doctor by the name of Pedar Brugier. For a time, he was able to sustain Marion's interest in her lifestyle of spending and gambling. And they had one son, Pedar Jr., who was like quickly given over to nannies, which was typical at the time. So Brugier's family were of Spanish nobility, and they did not like Marion at all. She really tried to front as aristocratic, but they discovered that she was the lowly daughter of a truck driver. You had pointed out, and I agree, she reminds me so much of Anne Woodward, who is the subject of another episode, The Woodwards. Totally 
recommend that you check out that episode. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners. And we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. You know, you got to give it to Marion. She was freaking ambitious. Yeah, you know, complete and she social just, climber. Yep, and she used her looks, she used her charm, she used her wits. And if the game at that point was for a woman to score a rich husband, she did very well for herself. You well, know? I mean, there was really no other way for women at this time to have any other upward mobility. Women, they didn't work. Some women, they're very wealthy, were educated, but that was for marriage to equip you for marriage to be more charming and marriageable. It wasn't so you could go out into the workforce. Yeah. And if you weren't born into money as a woman, you're right. Your working opportunities for you were extremely limited at this time. So cut to 1914, and the U.S. was going through an explosion of industrialization and invention. Think about it, the car, electricity, there's just this like huge ethos was just improvement and improvement and improvement. There was also a simultaneous explosion of immigration. There was just a huge number of immigrants who were pouring in from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, and they made this industrial revolution possible, but they also made the old wasp guard very nervous. And sort of under the guise of cleaning up the human gene pool, eugenics was born. Sarah, maybe you could explain to the listeners who don't know what a wasp is. <laughs> a wasp is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Yes. You know, so. so this is the OG in America at the time, and especially of a certain class. You see it in Boston, the Irish immigrants coming in. You see it in New York, the whole Ellis Island thing. Right. They're terrified of these darker people coming in. And there was a lot of racism, frankly, and xenophobia and, and a fear that somehow the human gene pool was going to get infected. In any case, this is the birth um, of eugenics. Exactly. You know? I mean, they were honestly terrified by anyone who isn't them. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah I mean, even from a lower class. Yeah. Never mind somebody who didn't look like them. Yeah. No, that was really scary. Yeah, exactly. Eugenics is from the Greek, and it means true birth, literally. And I'm sorry to say, I'm ashamed to say, it was a Harvard man who spearheaded this whole thing, a jerk by the name of Davenport, who took Charles Darwin's theory and just ran with it. At the beginning of the 19th century, eugenics was taken up almost, Laura, as a national duty in the U.S. The eugenists really believed that they could breed out undesirable traits in humans like alcoholism and mental illness and criminality and really what it was was trying to keep the white race pure it was trying to keep these scary elements out of the gene pool and really the ads were like keep the race pure and they meant the white race for well, sure right you know? and the feeble-minded and anybody that didn't fit into society's norms but unfortunately they sterilized they unsexed quote-unquote 
about 60,000 people, most of whom were poor people or people of color. Everybody looks to Hitler and goes, oh, his brutal, awful, lethal campaign in Europe. But Hitler got his whole idea from eugenics. He was in love with the idea of eugenics, and he sterilized hundreds of thousands of people who were deemed unfit in Nazi Germany with the same really vile thought that you could keep the German people create Right. Create, you know? What better way to create the perfect race than yeah. to breed out anybody that you deem undesirable? Exactly. And it wasn't that big of a leap to just killing millions of innocent people. But one of the myriad problems with eugenics is that it wasn't based on real science. Genetics are incredibly complex, even in simple organisms, let alone humans. And towards the end of the demise, of thankful demise of eugenics, the real scientists started really pushing back and they just started to defect from it, sort of saying like, look, this is too complicated, guys. We can't get we can't even know with fruit flies what the hell the outcome is going to be, let alone humans. So the actual demise of eugenics weaves into our story here about the Hewitt Coopers very centrally. So we'll address that a little well, bit. Well, and later. that's debatable if that really was a demise because eugenics and in many forms still exists. It's kind of one of those shape-shifting ideas because there's still been there's been sterilizations in prisons and there still is people make sex choices in birth that's all based on the same but in terms of actual state sponsored sterilization which you could say which is which, which has happened which is, in the prison system that's um, true. you know and and I think that's been investigated and obviously that was criminal that that occurred but it has occurred in modern times so it's not altogether dead, is what you're saying. I, okay, so let's get back to the Cooper Hewitts. So Marion flaunted her beauty and station in life, and New York newspapers ate it up. Ever the social climber and gambler, Marion's social coup came in 1914 with the seduction of Peter Cooper Hewitt. Hewitt Cooper. Okay, let's call him Peter, because Hewitt Cooper is too much of a mouthful for me. Peter was really cool. This is what I love about what we do, Laura, because we get to walk past these big monuments in New York or Boston or any place, and then you suddenly have the history that's attached to them. Peter invented the mercury vapor lamp. This is basically the precursor to the fluorescent light. And if you think about all these buildings going up in New York at the time, all these office buildings, they had no way to light them except for little lamps and also sunlight. So his light was a way to light up office buildings. But more excitingly, I love that his light was used in many of the silent films that were really wildly popular at the time. So he made a gang of money. So he was already from wealth and influence. So his invention actually made him a million dollars at the time, which was basically the equivalent of about 30 million today. But Peter came from a long line of prominent New Yorkers. So Peter was a descendant of Peter Cooper, who actually was an industrialist and an educational philanthropist who made his own money and was not formally educated, but left a huge mark on New York. And we can thank Peter Cooper for telegraphs, trains, jello. I love that. That's my favorite one. He was a philanthropist and he built Cooper Union 
college, which was a very progressive, free college that didn't discriminate on gender or race. And that was pretty cool at that time. super unusual. It really was. And it was free, Sarah. So that is kind of the legacy. When they built Cooper Union, they built this massive hall. And the first speaker in this massive hall was Mark Twain. And a year later, Lincoln, who was a presidential candidate at the time, gave his famous speech of 1860. Which was an anti-slavery speech. An anti-slavery speech. So Peter Cooper, who was not an educated man, left this legacy of education and his children and his son-in-law would all go to Columbia and his grandchildren and his son-in-law would become the mayor of New York. So in our story, Peter Cooper Hewitt actually did go to the Columbia University School of Mines. So that was kind of the tech school at the time. When Marion meets Peter, she really hits the lottery. So he's married when he meets Marion. They get together and it results in a pregnancy. And that's a big score for her. That's a huge score for her. So she's thrilled. Marion's thrilled she's pregnant. It's not out of any maternal urge, but that having a child would cement her a future and a fortune with Peter. So Marion's disappointment at having a female and not a male heir began at Anne's birth. Premature and small, Marion even refused the nurse's plea for her to hold Anne when she was born. Ugly was the word she used to describe her daughter. That just breaks my heart. Awful. So Anne was like kind of like their love child. And Peter totally loved Anne. But Anne was living with Marion in Paris, basically as a prisoner, as a child. Because Peter's still married. Peter is still married and he eventually gets divorced. They move to Manhattan, but unfortunately, Peter dies when Anne was seven. Peter is the only love that Anne ever really knows in her life, and her mother is diabolical. Her mother seems to make her daughter the enemy. Once, when Anne gets attached to people, Marion will pull them away. She is physically abusive. They found cigarette burns on Anne. I mean, it is absolutely awful. And the really crazy thing, and we're not sure. There's differing reports on what this happened. We don't even know if it happened. If it did happen, it's absolutely normal that Anne was caught masturbating, which is completely normal for children to do. And Marion used this, and this was the type, at that time, this was considered deviant behavior. Yeah, she basically has a campaign against Anne to deem her as a moron, deem her as feeble-minded. I feel like it's a little bit of like Munchausen by proxy type of thing with Marion. I feel like she has total control over Anne, all of her medical situations. She really indicts Anne for just very normal things. And I feel like Marion basically projects her own crap onto her daughter. And oh, definitely. Like, the the only difference I see with the Munchausen is she's not doing it for attention. It's a purely financial motive. Yeah. You know, you know, Anne is just a financial ticket for her. There's no love there. So this really comes to a head when Anne is 20. What we don't understand is that Anne is still considered a minor until 21, and her mother can make medical decisions for her. So Anne has to go in for a very routine appendectomy to get her appendix removed. And her mother conspires with these two doctors and pays them 
to get Anne's tubes removed. She does this purely for financial reasons. This is why this is the financial motive for her, is that she doesn't want Anne to have children. Because if Anne produces an heir, then two-thirds of Peter's fortune will go to Anne. And we're talking multi-millions at the time. We're talking about $60 million right. in today's money. Yes. You know, so- and, and this is pure greed because Marion still got a great deal of money when he died, but she wanted all the money. Yeah, exactly. She wanted all the money. So by basically sterilizing, sterilizing her, her, this made it that Anne would never produce an heir. Anne is recuperating in the hospital. It took several weeks to recover from her operations. <clears throat> and she overhears the nurse talking to the doctor and saying, the idiot referring to her, checking in on the idiot. I don't think she suspects anything. So what had happened prior to the operation is that Marion had sent Anne to go and talk to an alienist. Now, alienist is a term for a psychiatrist. Now, the psychiatrist deemed Anne's mental state to be that of about a 13-year-old. So this is total confirmation bias, by the way. We'll see that this gets totally countered later on. But that was the pretext for sterilizing, because keep in mind, there's shades of eugenics in here. The whole idea is if you deem somebody an idiot, if you deem somebody a moron, you're really helping to it by sterilizing them to keep them out of the human gene pool. This was the pretext for the sterilization. And and I just want to add that we don't that's a very inappropriate and offensive word, moron. These are, we're using these are the terms that were used at the time in oh, court. I've, I've used the word moron like more often. Oh my I, god, he's such a moron. No, but I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, they're using this medically. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. they're, they're using this medically. And another favorite one they used to, they would throw out to describe Anne is feeble-minded. Now. So cut to after the operation, Anne has figured this out and she becomes 21. She moves out of her mother's gilded freaking prison and starts realizing the extent of the abuse, including the sterilization. Well, Anne just, takes action. No, I mean, when I was researching this and like, and like when she got her groove on and she just like got her power, I just was like cheering her on. I mean, can you imagine how hard that must have been, you know, at that time, as a woman, as a young woman, yeah, and, having and, and endured that abuse. And goes to the police. And Marion is charged with criminal mayhem. Let me explain mayhem, because that is an interesting legal term. Mayhem actually became the word maim in English. And mayhem, I think we associate mayhem with like, oh, crazy chaos, blah, blah, blah. But mayhem right. actually means like, pulling body parts off of a body. It's like serious bodily harm. So mayhem in this case is it's a very serious charge. If she gets convicted of this, this is one year to 15 years in prison. Marion, of course, takes the brave route and, you know, tries to commit suicide, takes a bunch of pills as an act of like getting pity. I don't think she actually- like, I don't either. Really, and then I think it was, she was fronting. Quickly you know? goes to a sanitarium. And the doctors are also charged 
the doctors are also charged. They're yeah. also and charged. they should be. And yes, exactly. And they they took about nine thousand dollars, which is a good chunk of change for an operation that should have cost a few hundred bucks. And they were clearly conspiring with Marion. The problem is legally, the court couldn't really prove that because Marion still had jurisdiction over Anne's medical stuff, they couldn't really prove it. But Mind you, Anne is also suing her mother for $500,000. So Civilly. Civilly. Right. And this case explodes all over the headlines. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it really does have everything. It, it has a famous New York family. There's a monument to Peter Cooper and and asked for place. I mean, and you know this all of a sudden huge. this is in the in the but but it was also the so really juicy. So, it was so juicy. It was so salacious at the time because there was just stuff being flung at Anne, like oh she flirted with Negroes, which of course at the time was scandalous, and she wanted to run away with the chauffeur. She masturbated as a child. Yeah. I mean, these, these are things that are at the time explosive. And and I believe these were all things that Marion was a party girl. Marion was a big drinker. She went from husband to husband, lover to lover to lover. Big gambler. Big gambler. She, I mean, seri- you know. well, she was a serious gambler. Right. I don't think any of that behavior is immoral, but at the time it was considered that. And Marion was the one who was doing it, who was sort of projecting this onto Anne because for whatever reason, she wanted a reason to justify her dis- her, her horrible decision to sterilize her daughter. Yes. And I mean, you know, basically the public condemned, even though there there was no charges really proven against her. And she wound up settling with her mother because yes. she wouldn't testify against her. She was really kind of condemned by the public. Uh, Marion was Marian was condemned but- by the public, as were the doctors. I mean, they weren't charged. There, was, there wasn't enough evidence. The charges were dismissed, but they were really shamed. They were shamed. I think the more important Because look, at the time, a very sexy, salacious scandal. You've got this beautiful heiress that was sterilized by her mother. But keep in mind, there's 60,000 souls that were sterilized in the name of this junk science. So what happened was eugenics itself was put on trial. What happened was this was 1936 when the trial went ahead. What you had was people were seeing the horror of what Hitler was doing over in Europe as early as 1933 and really looking at eugenics from a different scope, that that the tide was turning on eugenics. Not only did you have these real scientists coming forward and saying, this stuff is not real science. We don't know genetics as well as we think we do. But also, people did not like what Hitler was doing over in Europe. And in that context, the popularity of eugenics as a movement really started to wane. And this trial was at the center of that. Well, I think it also was the optics of this trial. It was showing eugenics to a, a wealthy white woman. <laughs> you know, it was yeah, the exactly. optics were very different and you really were seeing it in a different light and I think it really made people really look at it. Because the other thing is during the trial what comes out is Anne was not feeble-minded. She knew French and Spanish. She was highly intelligent. One little funny thing I read in the book was that the female alienist, the psychiatrist who first examined Anne, 
the, the judge said to her, well, I want you to examine me. Ask me your series of questions. So the psychiatrist asked him a series of questions and then deemed the judge as having the mentality of a 12-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly, clearly, and the judge kind of laughed, right. like, you know, they kind of knew the gig was up. I love this part of the story. I'm sorry, because I love a good revenge story. Marion ends up in like a one bedroom apartment in New York alone and broke. Just want to add, even if Anne had been feeble minded, you know, this should never have occurred. I mean, that was a bogus pretext. That was a bogus pretext that, you know, and just shows how manipulative Marion was. But yeah, I kind of enjoyed that Marion. Ends up, up broke to broke, uh, baby. Bro- yeah, <laughs> broken alone in yeah. like a one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan, and she died a few years later. But Sarah, let, let's talk about what happens to Anne after oh. this case, because she won't live long, but she will live a colorful life. Oh, yeah. No, she unfortunately died at 40 of cancer, but Anne had a pretty interesting sort of romantic quilt of guys. She totally had different tastes than her mom and guys. And <laughs> but my my one of You mean she liked poor men? Well, no, she yeah. She, you know what's funny though? I had read in the book that her father, Peter, like basically on his deathbed, said, Anne, please find somebody who's like an inventor like me. Like make more inventors is what he was sort yeah, of yeah. saying to her. Aww. I know. So it's it's doubly sad. I, know, I, that, I think it's great. I love that Anne she picked these really colorful men and uh, my favorite favorite is and so she married six times she did twice to the same person but my favorite is roy the rodeo star which yeah. she actually left all of her money to but he didn't live long to enjoy it i think she married yeah. him twice i think he was her favorite too why have we never dated a rodeo star because we live in uh, boston and we're from cambridge <laughs> where they don't they don't produce rodeo stars in cambridge <laughs> Where have you been, Sarah? How old were you when you saw a horse the first time? The Medford Rodeo Stars. Yes. I didn't see a cow until I was like... No, I have a total cowboy thing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. So... Okay. TMI, Sarah. Okay. uh, She married several times, as we said. She married a lot of colorful men. None of them had any money, but they were they were all, I think she married a mechanic, um, you know, just all pretty interesting blue-collar guys. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously her motives were, were love and not money, and I respect that. I really think the irony in this case is that you have this terrible, terrible mother who probably shouldn't have had children. Do you know what I mean? And right. she is sterilizing her child. Right. I mean, that that to me is the, the, the irony. Right. No, and who probably would have been a wonderful mother who was really loving and a really, you know, to me seemed like a really great person, really compassionate person. And Absolutely. She was deprived of that by Marion. And that's the tragedy of this case. Yeah. 